this year, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. Pair your impressive skills with our advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop, powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Your dream setup, amazing prices, and free shipping await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I have with me Brittany Spanos and Rob Sheffield, and we're going to talk about the Beatles. Rob has an excellent new cover story out in Rolling Stone about the last days of the Beatles, essentially about their breakup and all that led to it. And I thought it was great that Rob found so much new to say about the Beatles, even though he's written an entire great book about the Beatles. Robert, were you ever worried about running out of Beatles stuff to say? I don't think so. I always remember about the time we talked about Ringo so long. We spent the entire show, <laughs> the entire Beatles show talking about Ringo and ended up with five minutes for George. And then also, sorry, John and Paul, we ran out of time. <laughs> so never. I think one thing I took away from your story, and, and some of it draws on the fact that Peter Jackson of Lord of the Rings fame and King Kong fame. Why not King Kong fame? That's the, you know, that has its moments. Not the Hobbit fame. Peter, <laughs> Peter Jackson of, not the Hobbit quadrology fame, but Peter Jackson of Lord of the Rings fame is working on a revamped version of the Let It Be footage. He's taking all that footage from the movie that chronicled what seemed to be their nadir, what seemed to be the band breaking up on camera and finding all sorts of other things in it. We'll talk about that. And I even have Ringo talking about that. We'll play that in a little bit for a couple minutes. But Rob, before we get to all that, why did the Beatles break up? Because I read your whole piece and I've read a million things. And it's just like, it's kind of like the Smiths. Like I asked Johnny Marr, like I've read all your memoirs. I still don't understand why did the Smiths break up? And he was just like appalled. (laughs) And couldn't answer. Uh, so I'm going to do the same thing to you. Why did they break up, Rob? What the? Why did they break up? The whole concept of bands taking a vacation instead of breaking up, <laughs> it, it's astounding how long it took for people to get the idea that that's actually what they should do. Think of the Smiths or The Clash or another great example. Great bands who break up for no reason except they need three months off and breaking up is the only way they can get it. And so... <laughs> You think about the Beatles and, and if they had only done at the end of 1969 in the beginning of 1970, they'd only just taken a few months off. It's easy to imagine an alternate timeline where they come back together refreshed to make a, an album in late 1970. But they just got pressured into doing this Let It Be movie and soundtrack that just tore them apart. Now, Rob, how much, if any, did you actually see of uh, Jackson's reworking? Well, he's still cutting the movie, as far as I know. So at this point, it's still up in the air what is going to make the movie and what isn't. But there's a ton of footage, and it looks amazing. The really remarkable thing about the footage, just first thing you notice, is how great it looks, because Let It Be, the movie, always looked super shabby on the screen, (laughs) because it was shot for UK 60s TV. It was shot in 16 millimeter. 
And then when they blew it up for movie screens, it, it just looked grainy and bad. Now it looks fantastic. You know, there, there's all this footage of the Beatles playing in the studio and having a lot more fun than uh, the previous movie seemed to show. So there's a lot of scenes where it's just John and Paul with their guitars and they start doing a song like Help. And it's incredibly moving to see the Beatles of 1969 singing Help, which was at that point a song that was four years old, but wow, they really relate to the sentiment in that song now. And they really are literally crying for help and, and they're playing it together. And it's just unbelievably beautiful. It's full of amazing scenes like that. Now, yeah, it was shot on this grainy, like 16 millimeter. Just how enhanced is it? Does it look like it was shot on on real on 35 millimeter or is it somewhere in between? Like how, how great does this thing look? I, I, have, I have to say, I gasped and said no way out loud just in the first few minutes of footage I saw just because I had seen footage of these scenes so many times in that really glitchy, grainy 1970 version. Even when they gussied it up for the VHS and it hit the VHS version in the 80s. So it looks like, you know, it looks like you're there in the room and they're just messing around. So there's a great scene where they're starting to do two of us and, you know, it's John and Paul and their acoustic guitars and it begins with that sort of oompa oompa rhythm. And John just out of nowhere begins to sing Obladi Oblada over that riff, just to crack up Paul and Paul cracks up. And of course, everybody knows the subject that this is a song that John gave Paul so much grief about how John supposedly didn't like it. And John's the one who starts singing it. It's just like a beautiful, tender, friendly moment. And there was nothing like that in the original Let It Be film. Well, that's actually incredibly revealing because for all of us who've read about that conflict going back, what we might not understand is that it was actually there might have been an element of playfulness and affection in the conflict over that song. We just know the conflict. We don't know. We can guess at the undercurrent of love. But what you just told me changes everything about what I thought I knew about an entire other album. So that, <laughs> that I mean, truly. So that that makes me uh, excited about the whole thing. But. Brittany, as you learned about the Beatles growing up, the same way I, I did, we certainly didn't experience them in real time. Did you always find it super confusing that Let It Be was recorded before Abbey Road, but released after? To this day, I still sometimes get confused about that. <laughs> I actually didn't know that for the longest time. I think like my my Beatles fandom was always kind of like, you know, the really early kind of them in their suits. Like, it's like the, I want to hold your hand. Like all of that was kind of my introduction of what I listened to growing up. And so I think it wasn't until even I was in my late teens, early twenties when I kind of moved past that. But I, know, I didn't know about that. And it's always, it's like always like one of those facts that like sits in my brain. And then <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, that's how it went down. Yeah. And it's also weird because like Abbey Road is, you know, it's it's so beautiful and, yeah. and so so upbeat. I know it's a favorite of yours. Yeah, it's I love that album so much. It's it's my my second favorite Beatles album after Rubber Soul. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great top two. But it's also like, I mean, we talked about this with when we did the last Beatles episode that we did, I think, yeah, when we did around your book and like how I reading your book made me such a fan of the white album, an album that I didn't really care for. <laughs> like it was like kind of like an album that I was like, you know, I like a couple songs from it, but like, I'm like not, I didn't go back to it as often as I went back to other Beatles, Beatles albums. And I feel like the same thing with like, let it be where I'm like listening to it more than I have in a while because of the yeah. way that you wrote about it and like re reading the story about it is kind of, it's, you know, 
it's been really fun to return to it on that level. There's a lot to talk about, obviously, but let it be versus let it be naked. I'll say where I fall, which is, I think I would basically prefer Let It Be Naked with perhaps a couple songs like Long and Winding Road, Less Naked, (laughs) and the dialogue from the Let It Be album inserted back in. And then I would probably be happy. I don't know. Where do do you two fall on that? Yeah, I I have to say, like, the dialogue on the Let It Be album has always been my least favorite part because there's something kind of forced and hammy about the little... You know, it's the, the whole thing, like when you're hearing a band in the studio try to sound like, hey, we're just hanging around talking, making jokes. But, you know, there's always, you know, the crew laughing at John's jokes. And it's like, oh, boy, it's a little painful, you know, like <laughs> they have to laugh. They're getting paid to laugh. It's just kind of uh, <laughs> awkward and forced sounding. So really just seeing like the sort of the spontaneity in this footage, it, it's really kind of a revelation. It, it changes Changes, but the thing is, when that great white album version came out a couple of years ago, and all those years, Paul and Ringo had said, You know, we had a lot of laughs making the white album, people exaggerate how much we fought, and it was easy to say, Yeah, 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 you know, just trying to put a positive spin on things. Mm-hmm. It was easy to be skeptical about that. But then, when we heard all the stuff that was in the vaults from the white album, we were like, Oh, yes. They were not lying. They actually did have a lot of laughs, a lot of friendly moments. Things like the version of Good Night, where they're singing it, all four of them are singing it in four-part harmony. And that's when I think, I, I think that changed a lot of people's thinking about the Beatles just in a broader sense of like, wow, if that was sitting in the vault all these years and everything we thought we knew about the White Album was wrong, maybe everything we know about all their albums is wrong. So something like Let It Be coming out with all, you know, 55 hours of footage that didn't make it into the film. <laughs> I just wish, by the way, that the film was actually 55 hours long. Can you imagine? It's just like, <laughs> you you will spend all week watching this movie. You think you like the Beatles? You will not like the Beatles 55 hours later. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. <laughs> Peter Jackson was so funny because Peter Jackson is, you know, a Beatle nerd among Beatle nerds. <laughs> the hardcore fan. And, and he said, the first day I was going into Abbey Road, he said, my feet were so heavy because he said, I just dread what I have to see because if what's in the movie is what they let us see, what are the other 55 hours like? (laughs) He said, just as a Beatle fan, I did not want to do it. There is something so bizarre about the fact that this band of all bands, that their final release, as far as release chronology, is this bizarre album with, with great songs on it, but a bizarre Phil Spector mauled album and a like kind of weird, shitty lo-fi movie that shows them hating each other is just such a by modern standards, it's such a it's such a bizarre coda to the whole thing. As you said, I used to find it super suspect that McCartney refused to allow the original Let It Be to be released, and then he would say, Oh, it was, you know, it was that's not really what it was like, because I always thought that was propaganda. So I mean, there you go. Apparently they were actually telling the truth. And I, I'm like I'm as shocked as anyone. You know, because it <laughs> sounded like no, I mean it sounded like pure bullshit. It really did. Yeah. You know, like because I mean they did break up. Like with the white album is vindicated. So it you know, it's like if the white album turned out to have something like that, you know, four man singing version of Good Night in the Vault, then I'm willing to say, okay, Paul is not just putting a positive spin on this stuff. Now I wanted to go through some of what's in your story. I think you do a really good job of breaking down the whole Alan Klein thing, which 
people find boring and confusing. They'd rather focus on Yoko because that's sexy, like the end sexist. Actually, in the classic Spinal Tap sense, it actually bridges the gap between kind of like a sexier story and a sexist story. It is both. There's something so primal and sexist about the idea that that a woman came in and broke up the band uh, and false and simplistic. But what's just messier and sort of boring and annoying is just like three of them wanted to sign with this guy as their business manager and Paul didn't. And it's like, you're already bored. You're already bored hearing about it. But that's, that's the thing. It wasn't, it, it wasn't Yoko at all. It was this, it was a dude named Alan, a dude named Alan who no one knows very much about uh, besides some of us nerds and the Alan Klein act- effect. <laughs> actually, actually. And before, before I let you, yeah, the Alan Klein effect. A dude from Long Island. Long Island broke up the Beatles. Of all places on earth, Long Island broke up the Beatles. Actually, I have an even even more precise theory from your story because I had forgotten about one detail you mentioned, which is Mick Jagger broke up the Beatles because... In his most, in the most yes. devious rival band backstab in the history of music, they asked Mick, like, you know, how about this guy Alan Klein? And he could have been like, run for your lives. Instead, he's like, he's all right if you like that kind of thing. And thus broke up the Beatles. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. This is the most underrated moment of Mick Jagger's career in terms of his all time sympathy for the devil, Machiavelli. Like, the Beatles ask him, what about this guy, Alan Klein? And Mick Jagger does not mention, oh, we're already in litigation with him. Because he's taken all our money and we will spend the next five years in court, ultimately giving him our entire song catalog just to get away from him. Mick Jagger just plays it to say, oh, he's all right if you like that kind of thing. Businessman, so boring. And as John said, you know, in his Lennon Remembers interview, it was Mick who got us together. And two years later, the Beatles no longer exist and the Stones are bigger than ever. Like Mick Jagger, ultimate Don Corleone move. We, we do not give Mick Jagger enough credit for the evil genius of that move. <laughs> Real rock yes, and roll absolutely. Forrest Gump, Mick Jagger. We're eventually going <laughs> to find out that all bands that ever broke up, Mick Jagger's in there somewhere. And somehow he, later he managed to, <laughs> Mick managed to screw the verve by sticking Alan Klein on him. It's just every it, it, bittersweet symphony. <laughs> we're we're going to find out that, that Mick Jagger was talking to Johnny Marr and saying, you don't need this, Smiths. He's going to be, it's going to be like Sympathy for the Devil where he's secretly implicated in the background of every band breakup. Ever. I, I love it. He recently was on the, just a couple of years ago, he was on the phone with Stevie Nicks and, he, and he's like, isn't it enough with Lindsay? Isn't it enough after all these years? We're going to see secret video cam footage of him with Zane. Right before one director. <laughs> Just whispering, leave. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're the star lad. <laughs> yes. yes. So Mick Jagger got them together with this guy. And the key role that Alan Klein played is that's why they didn't take time off. Because Alan Klein signed a new record deal. And so the Beatles needed some new product out there just because this was the first time that their manager was participating in the royalties. So he really needed Get Back, which was just sitting there and had been sitting there for a year. He needed that to be turned into an album as fast as possible, which was the opposite of what the Beatles needed. And it was really Get Back turning into Let It Be that broke him up. It wasn't Get Back itself. It was the process of Get Back turning into Let It Be. And that's where it fell apart. The other thing that's really interesting about that whole turn of events is everything the Beatles helped change in the record industry 
the idea of artists charting their own path and making albums that are from their own whims and not the whims of the record industry and really essentially, you know, as important as George Martin was, he wasn't really making them do anything, especially as, as time went on. All of that in the final moment reverses itself. And there's some kind of like weird little bitter irony there that I never thought of before. In the end, they couldn't escape the business they were in. Again, back to the Godfather, I guess. <laughs> this is the business they've chosen. But it's easy to imagine in an alternate timeline where after Abbey Road, they just say, hey, look, you know, we all want to do our solo albums. Let's just take six months off and do our solo albums so we won't have to fight over the next album. And there's that amazing George interview on New York Radio and WABC with Howard Smith in May 1970, where, you know, this is a few weeks after the Beatles have officially broken up, but George Harrison is saying, yeah, we just need to do our solo albums and then three months a year we devote to being the Beatles. And then the rest of the year we spend doing our solo albums and we'll be fine. And you think, wow, if only they'd taken that suggestion seriously, it really would have worked for them. I also thought it was really interesting that Peter Jackson told you after reviewing all the footage, because he now has more insight into this of anyone who's not in the band, that he told you that they didn't want to break up, but separately from all these other things, they really didn't know what to do next. They were hitting a wall. And I thought that was, and they kept talking about all sorts of things. And I guess he said that they were, you know, they were, they were talking about being a cavern club type thing again, which, which again, in the footage, what we know from the the existing footage is Paul like sort of suggesting that everyone else sneering at him, or at least John sneering at him. Uh, but apparently they were all kind of into the some similar idea. So uh, yeah, what did you make of that? That seemed kind of revelatory to me. Yeah, definitely. That they're they're bad. They don't want to do the same thing twice. So after Sergeant Pepper, they could have you know made another Sergeant Pepper, but they went to the White Album, the opposite extreme. They never wanted to do the same thing twice, and. He said they'd just run out of places to go. And that was part of the, the pressure that they were under. Something Peter Jackson said that really made me think, he was like, you know, I was too young to, you know, to know what was happening in 1970. But most people going to see the movie probably thought, yeah, okay, the Beatles are officially broken up right now. So there probably won't be a Beatles album in 1971 or 1972, but then there'll be another Beatles album. People thought of this probably at the time as a, a more temporary and sort of provisional thing that it turned out to be. Uh, we're going to lose Brittany in a couple minutes, but we did want to talk while we can. And before we jump back into it, I am going to play what Ringo Starr had to say to me about six weeks ago about the Peter Jackson film from the Let It Be slash Get Back sessions. What do you make of what you've seen of the uh, the Peter Jackson film? Well, I've only seen On the Roof. No, with Peter? Ah. Man, On the Roof it stands on its own. It's like, you know, in the original documentary, it was, uh, let's say, 12 minutes. I don't know. And uh, if that, and he's got it up to 45. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it's great. And, you know, there was no joy in Michael Lindsay Hogg's documentary, I didn't think. He picked one moment and, uh, and just canceled out everything else. And he was in so many shots anyway. Um, <laughs> and Peter, so we found 56 hours of unused video wow. film. And so Peter, thank God, decided to join us on this endeavor. And he's been stopped, of course, right now. It should be out this year, but it's not coming out. 
And so, you know, he'd come into LA, he'd come up and hang out with me and he'd have his laptop and he'd be showing me pieces they found, you know, and storylines. And, and we're laughing. I mean, it's joyous. We have, you know, people coming to visit us and, you know, while we're making the documentary. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of really great humor and the closeness of the boys, you can see, mm. not just that one moment that we really got over in the end. Uh, but, uh, yeah, anyways, you know, we have to thank Peter Jackson for taking this on. And uh, he has a great sense of humor, too. But he, I, we had a showing of just on the roof, and it's great. It's wow. really, really great. And, uh, you know, the rest of it, when he's finished, I'm sure will be cool. So, Brittany, you had a sort of thought exercise for Rob. What was it again? I want to kind of think about what would have happened if they had done where they had stayed together, but were able to actually effectively take breaks and pursue solo careers, do the music that they wanted to outside the Beatles and stay together for at least like the 70s, maybe 80s. Like, would we have gotten a Beatles disco album? Would they have, like, you know, <laughs> like, what would have happened next for them? It's such a fascinating idea to think of all the things that they would have done if they were still full-time Beatles while they were also doing all these weird side things. Like, you know, what would the Beatles have done? You know, a Beatles disco album is such a great idea. Uh, you know, and they tried separately. You know, Paul did Goodnight Tonight, which... Mm -hmm. And the, you know, Wings Disco didn't necessarily work, but if Ringo had been there, it would have worked. Yeah. I have to say, not to be a, a bummer, but I have, I have contemplated this, and this is the kind <laughs> of thing where it's like, you know, what if this couple hadn't got divorced in that year? I think the answer is just that they would have just broken up. <laughs> like, like they would have, they would have just broken up later, and it might have been <laughs> uglier, and they might have, we might have been treated to. Yeah something truly horrifying which is like a bad Beatles album like a truly bad it's possible yeah. but maybe not I mean it's just what I can't imagine what's interesting to imagine and tragic to imagine is just what if they were more like the Stones and just became mm -hmm. you know a machine in the sense of like albums tours albums tours and it's nothing is it nothing has to be so fraught I mean actually that's an idiotic thing to say it was profoundly fraught between Mick and Keith but at the same time they did you know they just they just kept going kept going and going and going and going and going and that's yeah is there any universe I guess I would ask where you two see that happening that somehow they just kind of like got it together and re I, I just I think they were too tr I think John was too troubled I think John wanted a different kind of life at points I think Paul wanted a more domestic life I I, I can't quite see it but i don't know what do you think i mean i think of like the i remember from stevie Nicks's rock hall induction speech where she was like she was like talking about the advice that she had given the girls from heim where they were where she was like go on and make some solo music and like go back to the band like you'll love the band more if you like do your own thing for a little bit i think there could have been a mixture i mean i understand but like i also think like they as solo artists kind of proved that that well of creativity was like endless. And so I wonder, I wonder if like, at least for like another decade or two, if they had been able to successfully, but again, like the industry kind of like, as you had mentioned earlier, like that kind of ruined that very notion, but yeah. So Rob, can you see that? You could see like a, perhaps not a Stones-like thing, but but truly like where there were like Beatles tours in the seventies. Can you picture that? 
I definitely can. You know, basically like Paul's big Wings Over America tour in 1976 is basically him doing a Beatles tour, except with Wings, which is, you know, part of the comical thing. You know, he let the other guys in Wings sing songs. Like the, the craziness of that cannot be overstated. So <laughs> Wings Over America, which is the triple album of that tour, which is an album that, you know, growing up when I grew up, you got to know that album really well. And it's like, wow, there is a, a moment on that album where Denny Lane is singing a Simon and Garfunkel cover. Not even a hit. He's singing Richard Corey. And you have to think of all these people are here to see Paul McCartney and Wings. And Denny Lane singing a Simon and Garfunkel song is not really what they're here for. But Paul really liked having a group. Ringo still likes really having a group. That's why Ringo still plays in a band where, you know, the guy from Men at Work sings a song and the guy from Santana sings a song. Everybody sings a song. And because also the Beatles loved playing with each other all through the 70s, often with two or three of them playing at the same time, just not all four. So there were always combinations of them who loved being friends and loved making music together, sometimes even in public. But you know, the, there's a famous story about them playing at Eric Clapton's wedding in 1979, where Paul and George and Ringo at the wedding reception are just jamming on a bunch of Beatles songs. And then Paul sends an angry note to Eric Clapton saying, why didn't you invite me to your wedding? <laughs> but it, it, to think of how many times three of the four got together to play, it seems crazy to think that it couldn't have been all four. With enough Documentary. Time for they needed to make was their version of Metallica <laughs> some kind of monster, just like, <laughs> you know, group therapy. With Mick Jagger just as the therapist. He broke them up. He has to put them back together. <laughs> it's really just performance and it's Mick Jagger. <laughs> like what would they have done with ELO? You know, like yeah. ELO or, or Rising Up. How would they have done with that? You know, after Led Zeppelin's fourth album, would the Beatles have felt the need to do like, let's do our own, you know, like, it, it seems like all the trends of the 70s that we never got to see the Beatles as a group respond to, you know, we, we got so many bad Stones records along the way, so many bad Dylan records, you know, bad records from everybody. It just seems like we deserve to get some bad Beatles records there somewhere. Well, I've always tried to figure out when we slipped into the wrong timeline and I have lots of theories, but maybe maybe it's when the Beatles decided to break up rather than just take a break. Maybe it goes the back that far. Someday I'll figure it out. I have a lot of theories. But <laughs> Brittany, I know you have to go. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Brittany. So you're listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. I have with me Rob Sheffield. We're talking about the Beatles breaking up, because why not? And because Rob has a great new cover story about that very subject. And Rob also has a great Beatles book that we have spoken about before, but it should be spoken about again and it's called Dreaming the Beatles, and you should definitely check it out. Rob, I was concluding that it was Alan Klein, but it was more than that when we get to the, the breakup of the Beatles. I mean, it's not like Yoko played no role. I mean, to be fair, I mean, it's obviously reductive and silly and sexist to, to say it was Yoko, but it was a factor. But there's something really interesting, which is there's long been an audio bootleg where Paul like basically jokes like, wouldn't it be ridiculous if history looks back and they say we broke up because Yoko Ono sat on an amp? Yes. And which was, you know, one of the most like prophetic 
<laughs> like that is literally what a lot of people think happened. Uh, and here he here he was in the moment. But and then so Peter Jackson actually has the footage of that. And just t- talk a little bit about about that because it's ex- extraordinary. Yeah, it's amazing. This particular dialogue, I just love that Paul quote so much. It's January. George just quit the band. Don and Yoko didn't show up today. Everybody's talking about this crisis and how it's all Yoko's fault. And Paul is the one sticking up for Yoko. And he says, it's going to seem such a comical thing in 50 years' time. They broke up because Yoko sat on an end. It's somebody that it's, yep, 50 years later, the world is still fascinated by Yoko sitting on an end. The things like with Yoko and John, I mean, drugs played a very heavy role in John's disaffection from the Beatles and his also his willingness to be abusive to George, especially. And uh, he was very much involved in narcotics at this point. Heroin became a very big problem for John in, in the beginning of 1970, I mean, beginning of 1969, particularly. And there's even moments in the Let It Be Get Back sessions where John and Yoko are, are joking openly with each other about, about heroin, and none of the other Beatles are picking up on it at all. What are they saying? There's a part where they're talking about exercising, and Yoko uh-huh. says, well, shooting can be very good exercise. And uh. she and John just laugh, and nobody has any idea what they're talking about. And of course, listen to it now, and it's like, oh, okay, yeah. Jokes like that. They do jokes about it when Peter Sellers comes to visit the sessions, uh, which is Awkward in itself because they're also desperate to impress Peter Sellers. He's one of the few people that they like really look up to and admire who also looks up and admires to them. And it's weird that the role that heroin plays, especially since John and Yoko understandably very keen to downplay that, uh, that phase of their relationship and their career after the fact. And it was something that they were very, um, very, very reluctant to talk about for all through the 70s. But it was uh, unmistakably a factor in, in them falling apart and the band falling apart. Hmm. Both John and Paul, as you point out, wanted to have the women in their lives play a more important part than sort of like patriarchal norms might dictate. That was a perhaps a factor in just where their emotional energy was going, perhaps. It was, I mean, they were, the emotional energy was going towards the women in their lives. I, I think that that is probably some factor in all this, perhaps. Totally, totally. And something that, you know, that sets them apart from, from, again, from all rock stars of their generation, you know, that the Beatles married artists and they wanted to collaborate and make art with the artists they married. And you can't imagine any other male rock stars of their generation doing that. You know, like to pick the most, the lowest hanging fruit. Imagine the Stones deciding they're going to break up because Keith and Anita want to have their own band where they're doing art projects, where they're like lying in a paper bag for a week to demonstrate for world peace. Imagine like a scenario where the stones break up over that or the who or Pink Floyd or Led Zeppelin or any band of that generation. And the Beatles, they were always. I think Zeppelin is Zeppelin is definitely the funniest counterexample. Yes. Like trying to imagine John Bonham, you know, <laughs> imagine John Bonham had a woman in his life that he just he just needed to make art with and would leave Led Zeppelin. Like nothing could be more unimaginable. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jim, Jimmy Page and, and, you know, like and, and Sable Star or whoever. Um, but this is something that the Beatles they took very seriously and that, you know, John and Paul, they both got married around the same time. They both got married March, 1969. 
and they both married women who were very, very, very similar. Yoko and Linda, very different people in very many ways, but they were both artists from New York City. They were both very independent women who had already gotten married and had a kid and had the marriage end. And they both went to Sarah Lawrence. <laughs> uh, they were they were college classmates. So gosh, I, I didn't wow, I didn't know that. That's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy, right? And again, so different. You know, nobody, not one single person in the Stones or the Who married a Linda or a Yoko. But John and Paul had to marry Yoko and Linda at the same time. And uh, this is something that really set them apart. Viv Albert, Albertine of the Slits has a great part in her book, her memoir of, of you know being an early female punk rocker in the Slits. Uh, she has a great part about how the Beatles for her were always cooler than the Stones, cooler than Dylan, cooler than all those people because they had like adult women in their life who they married. And, you know, it's very different from who other rock stars wanted to marry. Um, but for the, to say the least, but for the Beatles, it was female artists that they wanted to collaborate with as equals. And this was offensive and shocking to people and people made fun of them, <laughs> fun of them for it for years. Mick Jagger saying, I wouldn't have my old lady in the band. <laughs> Although in his case, it's fun to imagine, you know, Bianca Jagger playing tambourine on Mick's 1972 solo album. The most bored and arrogant tambourine player <laughs> imaginable. A, a jewel-encrusted uh, tambourine played with contempt. But <laughs> I did want to mention the extra person in the room during these sessions who's, who was Billy Preston, who was uh, a genius musician and part of it was that you know he was filling out the sound because they were playing live uh part of it was he was just great part of it was that they as many people pointed out they realized going back to eric clapton and the white album they were able to sort of behave themselves better if there was an, another person in the room but yes how do, how do you see his his role in all this it's really amazing he, he played a key role history has not really recognized billy preston's role in in saving the beatles at, at a point where they're at the Twickenham studios. It's the early part of the sessions. They're fighting and scrapping all the time. And Billy Preston really changes the emotional energy once they get to Apple Studios. And, and very, very good person to have on hand for diffusing a crisis. Um, the first day that they were in Apple, Billy Preston just happened to be in the lobby, like for lunch. He was just there, like doing some business. And uh, George saw him in the lobby and physically grabbed him and said, come upstairs and play with us. That's how tense the morning had been. And Billy Preston comes in, sits in on electric piano, and they start playing Don't Let Me Down. And for all the other Beatles, it's suddenly fun. And you can hear how much fun they're having. It's, it's really kind of remarkable. There's a great part where they're, they're doing Don't Let Me Down, and John says, take it, Bill. And Billy plays an amazing keyboard solo. And after it, they're all kind of in shock. And John says, I say, take it, and he takes it. You're giving us a lift, Bill. And it's kind of amazing. And, and they speak very openly in front of each other about how difficult it was till he got there. So Billy Preston, he added a lot. And, and he, he played wonderfully on Abbey Road as well. Yeah, I mean, this is a guy, I unfortunately wrote his obituary when he passed. And and I mean, but this is a guy who, who started off with Little Richard, uh, who, you know, and I think they first met him when he was playing with Little Richard. Yeah. And you know, I mean, first of all, imagine who the guy is who, who gets to play second keyboard in Little Richard's band. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just think about that for a second. And then, you know, he was, uh, you know, he, he played with the Stones as well, among a million other things. But this is a guy who played with both the Beatles and the Stones. 
fantastically talented and, and unfortunately yeah. troubled dude uh, and a whole story yeah. in itself and i think if i think someone's working on a documentary about him or, or someone should be or you know it, it's one of those stories that that should be told another big factor that we haven't mentioned at all in fact the name we barely said uh, is george the most famous thing that people know from let it be as you pointed out from the movie is this scene that gets isolated where george famously gets super pissed at paul uh and so as much as that might be a reductive version of what was going on, that was a factor. Like George had all these songs and was getting sick, not just, and one thing I realized from your story, not just of not being able to record the huge pile of songs that he had, but also when he did, he didn't like the way the Beatles did them, which is really funny to me. Like, I, yeah. I mean, that I, I think he's, I don't get, but it's fascinating. Like he, he's like, he's like with the Beatles, please stop ruining my songs. <laughs> it's like, it's like, yeah, it's like songs are good, but the backup band really sucks. <laughs> the thing about George, and I don't know, I, I spent an astounding amount of my time day to day, like going into the mind space of George Harrison, someone I find Oof. so fascinating, someone who means so much to me. But the thing is that he can walk into any room in the world and be treated with awe and respect and admiration, except the room where the Beatles are. They are wow. the only people on earth who don't give him that kind of respect that he craves. They still look at him as, as the junior partner, the little kid in the band. And he, he spent a lot of his time hanging out with people like Eric Clapton, Bob Dylan, Delaney and Bonnie, people who respected him as a peer. And it's like, how is he going to be like, you know, hanging out at Bob Dylan's house at Woodstock, jamming and like writing songs together. And then he has to go into a room and take orders from John and Paul again and he is just tired of that. And he, he's like, don't you know that Bob Dylan and I wrote the song Wallflower together? <laughs> well, like, yeah. Okay. That is a decent song. <laughs> I'd have you anytime is a classic. Um, but, but also, I mean, George's frustration is so palpable and, and, and it's such a huge part of like those like awesomely raging, seething, nasty, negative songs that he was so wonderful at writing in this period because he is so used to this routine where he gets two songs per album and it does not matter how good they are or how bad they are. John and Paul are just going to, you know, treat them like they're just filler, like they're doing as a personal favor. And so, you know, the moment where George quits the Beatles, he's trying to teach them all things must pass. Kind of a good song, right? <laughs> not, a, not a B or C or D list George song. That's, that's a keeper. And John's contempt for this song, it's really kind of painful to hear. And John just keeps playing this Chuck Berry riff, and he and just to his face, he refuses to play the song that George is trying to record with him. And finally, George can't take this, and you have to feel for the guy. He's like, yeah, you know, like, he could go record this song with Clapton and Dylan and Jim Keltner or whoever <laughs> on the spur of the moment. Yeah, I mean, occasionally, you know, there are John Lennon anecdotes, and it's not like just a few there are john lennon anecdotes where there's no other conclusion that you can draw is be like john was being an asshole a lot of <laughs> like, that yes and especially after it's it's funny if you read their press after abby road has come out because john's interviews after abby road comes out people keep asking about here comes the sun and something and it's it's funny because like john is like okay yes now that you pointed out those are the best songs on the album yes we're aware of that and he's really not happy about it and he has this really funny line in the UK music press where he says, 
you know, George has been trying to get his songs on our albums since 1925, you know, like almost like John is saying like, yeah, okay, he wrote the two best songs on our biggest album, but he's still just George to me. And it had to be really galling, especially like, you know, in sessions where Yoko enters and she's higher up in the chain of command than George's. Yeah, I mean, John seems like he could have been a, a difficult and prickly person. And then sneering John on heroin with new Yoko in his life was probably pretty hard to deal with. I mean, like that can't have been super easy. Uh, and your point about George and what he'd encounter with everyone else is well taken. And it's it does explain a lot. I, I, I think there's a lot, the way George's 70s went from there I think if you can put yourself in that headspace, your your empathy goes farther than mine. Some of, some of, some of it is pretty baffling. It's, I always love the story about when George asked Robbie Robertson if he could join the band because he loved music from Big Pink and the band. And he thought, this is what a band should be. No egos. You know, of course, but it, no, <laughs> yes. The grass is greener on the other side. There was a lot of ego and conflict in the band. But he said, this is, you know, such so much harmony. They just, they trade vocals. It's a democracy, you know, and, and he actually asked if he could join that band. And Robbie Robertson had to say, no, actually, you'd probably be a distracting presence because you're very famous. But that's the kind of band that George fantasized about being in. Before we go, I wanted to ask you about, speaking of dick moves, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would say that Paul's, breakup of the band people may not realize that paul essentially really announced the breakup of the band with a press release that he included in his first solo album wasn't that kind of a dick move too i mean in retrospect uh yeah no question about it and also i love you know his interview in rolling stone before the album comes out where he says make sure you pay attention to the press kit uh, which is very funny like especially when you know he's doing this interview with rolling stone's founder and editor John Wenner, same guy who does all those interviews with John at the time. It's almost like John and Paul aren't speaking to each other. They're just using Jan as their couple therapist. And Paul says, yeah, there's, there's a press kit coming with the album and you want to read it, but I don't want to tell you what's in it because it's much nicer as a surprise. <laughs> surprise! Surprise, yes. Uh, <laughs> the oh, dream is dead. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Let all, all who enter the remainder of life on earth despair. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so Paul knows that this is going to be a bombshell. Uh, but, it, you know, it's the kind of thing where they just did not know what was going to come next for that friendship or, or that musical partnership. So, Rob Sheffield, as always, thanks for joining me. Check out Rob's new cover story on the Beatles. And thanks to Brittany Spanos as well for joining us today. And this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. We'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's volume, channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts iTunes and Spotify are always good ideas. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. As always, I do read them. Thanks for listening. Stay safe out there, and we will see you next week.
Movies, TV shows, books, podcasts, and more. It's what women binge with Melissa Joan Hart and her friend Amanda Lee. We have Lauren Bosworth with us. Yay! The Hills. So what is like your number one question from fans? The primary question I still get asked was, "What is it real? (laughs) (laughs) In 2024, to me, is a surprising question to get because I feel like everybody has been through the reality TV gauntlet at this point. What women binge wherever you listen. Hi there. Sorry for the interruption, but are you enjoying this show on Google Podcasts? You should know that the Google Podcasts app is going away this spring. That's right, going away, gone, as in no longer available. You can still enjoy this show elsewhere, though. Try out Spotify or Amazon Music, or maybe TuneIn is more your style. Whatever app you switch to, be sure to follow so you never miss the next episode. And thanks for listening wherever you listen.